in his book, Growing Strong in the Seasons of Life, Charles Swindoll tells a story about the 19th century agnostic named Thomas Huxley, a man who promoted Darwinism and humanism in his attacks against humanity in Europe in the mid-1800s. One day, Huxley was in Dublin, Ireland, and was rushing to catch a train. He climbed on board one of Dublin's famous horse-drawn taxis and said to the driver, Hurry! I'm almost late. Drive fast. Well, the driver did exactly what he was told. Off they went at a furious pace. Huxley sat back in his seat and closed his eyes assured that at this quick pace they would surely get to the train station on time. But after a few minutes had passed, Huxley sensed something was very wrong. He opened his eyes, glanced out the window, and realized they were going in the opposite direction of the train station. Then he began to wonder, did I tell the driver where I wanted to go? Thinking that perhaps he had not given the driver complete directions, Huxley called out to him, Do you know where you're going? To which the driver replied, No, I do not. But we're going there really fast. (laughs) This story illustrates the condition of so many people. They're going fast but they really don't know where they are going. This morning we are beginning our study through Colossians. A study about Jesus who knows the way because He is the way. And because He is the way, we need to follow closely behind Him. Agreed? Now before we dive into this letter, I need to first set it up with some background. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul, who was under house arrest in Rome from about 60 to 62 A.D. Paul was in limbo, awaiting trial for about two years under the guard of a Roman soldier. 
And instead of complaining about his hardship and moping around his confinement, Paul continued to carry out the ministry that God had called him to. With the approval of the soldier, Paul was still able to have visitors. And when the opportunity came, he devoted some of his time to writing letters to include this very letter to the church in Colossae. Now, what do we know about Colossae? It was located in Asia Minor. There's a map up there. It was located in Asia Minor. It's a Roman providence in what we now call Turkey. It was situated about 100 miles southeast of Ephesus. We know that name, Ephesus. And near Colossae were two other cities named Laodicea and Heropolis. At one time, Colossae was on a major trade road between the east and the west of Asia Minor. And as such, it was a growing and prosperous city. It was a major center for the wool industry. But at the time of this letter, the main road had been rerouted. And Colossae dwindled into a small town. In fact, we wouldn't know anything about this town in the Bible if it wasn't for this letter to the church that was there. Now, how did the Colossian church get started? Well, it was the result of Paul's prior ministry in Ephesus. For three years, Paul had ministered in Ephesus. And apparently, a man from Colossae named Epaphras was visiting Ephesus where Paul shared the gospel with him. He believed it. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And when he returned home to Colossae, he shared what he heard to his family and friends. The gospel spread. The movement grew. And Epaphras started a church, possibly in the home of Philemon. Now that name might ring a bell to you, because Paul would write him about a runaway slave named Onesimus, 
who he would have helped to deliver this very letter to the Colossians. Anyway, that's what happened. A man, not the Apostle Paul, not a minister, not a Christian worker, a man heard the gospel and he shared it with others, who in turn shared it with others. They organized and a church was formed. That's how the gospel spread throughout the world. Someone shared with someone else and someone else shared it with another. That's how you and I became followers of Jesus Christ. Because someone actually took the time to share the gospel with us. So why did Paul write this letter to this church, a church he did not start, a church he did not know, a church he hadn't even visited. At the time of this letter, the young church in Colossae was about five years old. It's a young and impressionable congregation. But to their credit, they were described as faithful. They were faithful. They seemed to be a healthy and thriving church. But there were some false teachers who had made their way into that region who were offering something for everybody. And they were seeking to wiggle their way into the church. This young congregation with people who were sponges for spiritual insight and knowledge about Jesus, who had no Bible because there was no Bible yet, were being introduced to all kinds of worldly philosophies and pagan superstitions and man-made religions. The church hadn't fallen yet. But in this melting pot of false teaching, there was a real concern that they could lose their bearings. Which prompted Epaphras to travel. Show the next map. To travel some 1,000 miles one way, one way to visit Paul in Rome and explain his concerns. And what Paul learned from Epaphras inspired this letter to the Colossians about knowing and following the true Jesus. In their confusion, not knowing what to believe, Paul sought to center 
to recenter their attention on the truth of Jesus Christ. That's the background of this letter. And I don't know about you, but from this background alone, I know this letter is the right letter for us in our day. Like those in Colossae, we too live in a melting pot of false teaching. In our day, many suggest that one belief is just as good as another. They say we're all going in the same direction, so it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. It's frequently said, and I have heard it, you got your truth, and I got my truth. When the reality is, there's only one way. And there's only one truth. And any other supposed way, or supposed truth, or supposed half-truth, is still a big old lie. In our day, many want to cherry-pick from various schools of thought. In their minds, taking the best of each. Creating their own fusion of religion. So ultimately... They can believe what they want to believe and do what they want to do. And in our day, many claim we need something more than Jesus because apparently Jesus is not enough. We need exhilarating experiences. We need entertaining personalities. We need more diverse, watered-down doctrines to promote harmony so we can unite with those in other religions. And we need the deeper stuff to get in touch with our inner selves and with the divine. That's what we need. But the truth is, we already have exactly what we need. His name is Jesus Christ. And He is more than enough. Anyway, as you can see, like the Colossians, we too live in a melting pot of false teaching. And this letter written to that church is just as relevant to us in our day. So with that said, if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. 
Colossians chapter 1, and we will begin with verse 1. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is Paul's customary greeting in his personal letters. In this greeting to the church in Colossae, Paul begins by identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. One chosen and sent out. Not by man, not by his own desires, but by the will of God. Paul is an apostle, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and as such, he is one who has God-given authority. His word is an authoritative word. And this was important to establish at the very onset with this congregation who is trying to figure out what to believe about Jesus. Yes, the false teachers are going to make their pitch. And yes, they are going to claim they know a better way. But when Paul speaks, when Paul has something to say, they need to listen. And they need to take it to heart. Paul is an apostle with authority. And he's not alone. In his greeting, Paul adds that he has some company while he is under house arrest. And it's Timothy, his loyal companion and son in the faith. Then Paul describes the recipients of this letter as saints. And we will come back to that in a moment. And lastly, he closes with his greeting with the words, Grace to you and peace. In that order. It's always in that order. Grace and peace from God our Father. Grace, which is God's unmerited favor, comes first. It's foundational. And once you have received God's grace, then you can experience God's peace. You will never experience peace until you have received grace. And I might add 
That understanding God's grace is a key to following Jesus. Jesus saved you because he loved you. You did not deserve it and you cannot earn it. You are saved by grace and you are to live by grace. And it's grace that gently teaches us and enables us to fall in love with the Master and to follow Him. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. This is such an awesome verse. It might be a surprising verse. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus gives us heaven when we deserve hell. That's grace. He grants forgiveness when we deserve to be forgotten. That's grace. He offers us life. When we deserve death. That's grace. And in light of that grace, our only reasonable response is to follow Jesus. Now, as I said earlier, I wanted to come back to that word saints. Because that is a word typically not used Unless you're a Catholic or you live in New Orleans during the football season. (laughs) Paul called those in Christ saints. That's one of his favorite words. And it refers to those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You are a saint. And let me explain that. Because some of you are thinking, as I did, I've been called many things in my life, and saint is not one of them. In the Greek, the word saints is hyos. Which means holy one. And it paints the picture of a person who was once dirty and filthy, 
who has been washed clean like brand new and is now set apart by God as His very own possession. That's a picture of salvation. Whereby grace we have been cleansed and made righteous and we are set apart by God. Christians are saints. Not because we're good, but because by God's grace we were placed in Christ. It's not a performance thing. It's a positional thing. We are saints in Christ, and because that's who we are in Christ, then simply put, we just need to act like who we are. You are saints, so act like it. Okay, let's get to the body of this letter. Beginning with verse 3. Where Paul opens with a prayer of thanksgiving, which is one long sentence. We give thanks to God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as, is, as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. <sighs> okay, let me get a breath. Paul was a great encourager. And here he begins his encouragement with affirmation in the form of a prayer of thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God for this church in Colossae. And in his thanksgiving, he mentions he's heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to stop there for a moment. As we will discover, this letter from Paul focuses on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. For the entire gospel message centers around him. And it has to, because he is the Son of God who died for us and rose again. Jesus is the center of the gospel. And therefore, to attack the gospel, teachers 
false teachers must undermine the truth about Jesus who is the center of it all. But here, Paul says to this church, your faith is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object of their faith. There is a story about a famous evangelist named George Whitefield who was witnessing to a man. What do you believe? Whitefield asked. The man replied, I believe what my church believes. And what does your church believe? Asked the evangelist. What I believe, replied the man. Undaunted, Whitefield tried again and asked, and what do you both believe? Why, we believe the same thing. It is meaningless to say, just believe. I see that on shirts. I see that on bumper stickers. It is meaningless to say, just believe, because there is a follow-up question that comes after that, that must be answered. Believe what? The message of the gospel is not, to, not just to believe. It is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has to be the object of our faith. And fortunately for those in the church of Colossae, it was obvious that their faith was in Jesus Christ. And that begs a question for you and me. Is our faith in Jesus Christ that obvious to others? Now if you noticed, Paul also said he heard of their love for the saints. Or we might say the Colossians demonstrated their faith in Jesus by pouring out their love into others. And let's not overlook that little word all because it says a lot. Their love was poured into all the saints. Not just some of the saints. Not just the ones they liked. Not just the ones who were lovable. Not just the ones who deserved it. Not just the ones who agreed with them. But all the saints. We know we are following Jesus when we love others the same way God loves us. And you're not going to like this. Sorry. (laughs) But you don't get to pick and choose who you love as a follower of Jesus Christ. Sorry. That's why I know (laughs) that. You don't get to pick and choose. Well, next, Paul ties it all together. And he says 
They have faith and love because of the hope which is laid up for them in heaven. Here's the reason for their faith and their love. It springs forth from their confidence and their certainty in the promises of God which are safe and secure in heaven, the place where Jesus is. That's what heaven's all about. It's not so much about a place as it is about a person. The person who's there. That's where Jesus is. Who's the center of it all. I like how Charles Swindoll describes this interrelationship between these three virtues of faith and love and hope. He says, Faith looks back to the anchor of our salvation, Jesus Christ's person and work. Love looks around, building up the body of Christ through selfless service towards one another by the power of the Spirit. Hope looks ahead to the unalterable promise of God the Father that He will one day usher us into His presence. Their hope was not in this world. And that truth would become painfully evident to the Colossians for shortly after receiving this letter the town of Colossae would be completely leveled by an earthquake. Everything would be gone. Some would stay and rebuild, while others would move on, carrying their hope with them. Their hope, our hope, is not in this world. It's in another world that cannot be shaken. So they have faith and love and hope. All of which we are told originate from the word of truth. The gospel which clearly explains that Jesus Christ is God Himself who came to earth in the flesh to dwell among us. He performed miracles and signs and wonders. He spoke words of truth. He identified with us and yet He did not sin like us. Then according to God's predetermined plan, Jesus suffered and died on a cross for us. He shed His blood for our guilt. And He rose from the dead to make us right with God. And as a result, we have new life 
in Christ by trusting in his finished work on our behalf. When the Colossians heard the gospel by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they were saved. And not only that, they came to realize that the gospel is life-giving and life-changing. It bears fruit. And it has the power to transform lives. At an open-air gospel meeting, the preacher asked for testimonies. While this was going on, a skeptic was passing by. Just when the testimony of a saved drunkard was being given, he stopped and listened. The former drunkard was telling how Jesus had wrought a miracle and saved his poor soul. The skeptic scoffingly made a few remarks to those standing near him. He said it was nothing more than a dream. Religion saving a man a man in this manner. No one answered him. But God had a way of dealing with him, the skeptic. Among the listeners was a little girl about ten years old. She had known the misery of a drunkard's home. She heard the remark of the skeptic, and going up to him, she said, Please, sir, if it is only a dream, Please don't wake him. That's my daddy. That's what the gospel does. With the help of the Holy Spirit, the gospel transforms the lives of people. And as for you and me, our job is to simply share it. To share what we know and let the Holy Spirit Do what he does with that word. And if the church in Colossae had any doubts about the power of that process, all they had to do was look at their own beginning. Paul said, You learned the gospel from one man. From Epaphras. Just one man who shared what he had heard. And now Paul is writing to an entire congregation. A congregation who themselves would plant churches in the neighboring cities. Go figure. But God, in His infinite wisdom, in the power of the Holy Spirit, has chosen, He has chosen to use people. He did this. 
He has chosen to use people through which the gospel is to be shared and spread all over the world. That is the method he has chosen in his wisdom. He chooses to use people. Us. When Oliver Cromwell ruled England, the nation experienced a crisis when they ran out of silver and could not mint any coins. Cromwell sent his soldiers to the cathedral to see if any silver was available. They reported back that the only silver was in the statue of saints to which Cromwell replied, melt down the saints and get them in circulation. Melt down the saints and get them in circulation. Like Epaphras, we need to be in circulation. Like Philip, what are you reading? Can I pray for you? Can I help you? We need to be in circulation. We are to share what we know and then, and this is so freeing, and then leave the results to God. That's what it means. Share what you know and then leave the results to God. That's what I'm asking. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. As we begin this, this, this letter of Colossians. Lord, I know that there's a lot here. But whatever's here, I know it's going to bring us right back to Jesus Christ. He is the center of this letter. In fact, he is the center of the Bible. It is Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness to share. We are in a hurting world. Give us the boldness to share what we know in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, Father, help us to leave them in your, your good hands. Thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
<clears throat> I was planning to say something else, and uh, now I've got a whole new, a whole new train of thought. I hate when that happens. Yeah, again. If I was to ask you, let me just let me just preface this. Let me just preface this. This is not meant to disparage anyone. This is not meant in a judgmental way. In any shape, I just want, I just want to put that out there. Okay, not meant to. We're all growing as Christians. I get that. I get that. But this is just so important. I just feel like I just gotta. When it comes to sharing our faith, I typically hear when I talk about this, well, I'm afraid. It's a fear issue, right? I get that. Or even better yet, I just don't like talking. I just don't like talking. You ever said that? I just don't like talking. Right? I guarantee any grandma here could spend hours talking about their grandchildren. We could spend hours talking about sports, or goats, or rocks. We could spend hours talking about politics. Am I right? Correct me if I'm wrong. We can, we, can, we, can, we can spend hours. We'll talk to a fence post if it'll listen to us. We will talk hours. About those things that interest us. Tell me if I'm wrong. We will talk hours about those things that interest us. So please don't tell me you don't like talking. Because you do. But for some reason, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to cast judgment. I'm just, I'm at fault too. But for some reason when it comes to Jesus who is supposed to be the center of our lives. Am I right? You know I'm right.
Every one of you here is an evangelist. Because you will talk about those things that interest you. Until you're blue in the face. But then for some reason when it comes to Jesus, I don't have an answer. I think maybe sometimes we make it harder than it has to be. You've been through those courses, right? You've been through those courses where you have to memorize 100 verses. There's a plan, there's a process, there's a, I'm not knocking those. But maybe like Philip, what you reading? You know, I can tell you're hurting. Can I pray for you about something? Can I just pray for you? See where that leads. Something as simple as that. In the last two weeks, I have heard about, I've heard of three suicides. People are hurting. People are hurting. The gospel, it means good news. It's a message of love and faith and hope. People need to hear it. And God has chosen in his wisdom that it would be carried out and spread through us. Through us. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never heard the gospel. I would love to share it with you. I'd love to tell you about Jesus. He loves you more than you'll ever know. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Some place to identify with. Or maybe you just need prayer. You're burdened. Whatever it is. As they play the music, I just pray you just respond to the Lord as He leads you to respond. Just be obedient. Larry? Thank you.